chapter 19, we're going to finish these last few verses. Uh, Pastor Mike, a few weeks ago, remember, he kind of went through the triumphal entry. Uh, But he didn't quite get to the end, because there's some to uh, uh, unpack here at the end of the chapter. And frankly, this end of the chapter, and I believe the... Oh, next chapter, maybe next chapter, and a little bit into twenty verse uh, chapter twenty-one, really uh, does highlight here the the reality of the triumphal entry and uh, what Luke is, I think, trying to compile for us by way of by way of his order of the gospel. And so, what I mean by that, frankly, is that. Here, Luke is trying to assert the reality that Jesus has absolute authority. And if you're a gospel reader up until this point, you don't quite feel that all the time. You see the struggles of Jesus' authority, certainly as a human, and certainly against the religious system and the religious leaders. Um, and then just think about the timing of the triumphal entry. We are only a few days away from the crucifixion. We're, we're a few days away from Christ's death. You know, we're less than a week out, really. And the reality is a disciple may kind of come to these words and turn this corner and say, whoa, are things out of control? That certainly was the case if you were probably a disciple at that very time, living in the moment, right? And so uh, what we will, the question I want to ask right away is what will keep this church from becoming merely another religious system, right? So you have this religious system that comes to full confrontation with the Messiah. They were looking for him, they were told about him, right? And the question is, what is going to keep us really from being blindsided by some sort of religious system? And we can fill in the blanks of people who belong to religious systems today. And we long to kind of shake them with the word of God in love and say, no, (laughs) you're missing the whole point as you gather and as you worship. And so really what I want to kind of overlay over this text is a, is a question for our application tonight. What is going to keep this church, Grace Church of Menor, merely from becoming another system, another religious system? We don't want that. None of us are gathering here today interested in going through the motions of a religious system. And so the very future of the church is very much at stake in, in terms of if we can answer this question. And I think perhaps maybe Luke helps us to kind of see the contrast between the religious system and those who are truly following the Messiah, the Christ. And so really, learning, teaching, obeying, whatever it is, it's, it's learning and teaching and obeying God's word is submitting to Jesus Christ's absolute authority. So there's a relationship with God's word that really is synonymous with the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't really divorce the two. You can't have a relationship with Jesus without a relationship with his word. Right? I don't think that's anything that we're saying tonight that is that is a question mark for us. And so in our study of Luke up until this point, we can still hear the shouting really of Hosanna, right? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And the triumphal entry reminds us that people were looking for Jesus to use the same power, the same kind of miracles to launch an attack against the very corruption they're crying out for deliverance from. They are looking for a deliverer. Right? And Pastor Mike was pretty clear about that as he was going through the tri triumphal entry. The problem was Jesus was not delivering them from what they saw as their problem. What did they see was the problem? Well, let's look at verse 37 just to kind of back up a little bit before we dive into our text. As soon as he, as Jesus, was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. Right? And this, is, this is just a, a crazy thing, understanding what's about to happen in just a few days' time, when that same crowd essentially then starts to yell what? Crucify him! What were they looking for? They were joyful with a loud voice for what? For all the miracles which they had seen. They saw a lot of physical things happening, and they were looking for that culmination. What was that culmination? It was freedom from the oppression that they had been under underneath the Roman occupation. They didn't exist on their own. They didn't have autonomy. And so they were shouting, Blessed is the king, right, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And when they say peace in heaven, what are they really saying? They don't want peace with God. That wasn't their primary interest, was it? If there's peace in heaven, then there's going to be what? Peace on earth. That's what they were really looking for. They were looking for peace according to their terms. So they were looking for a king and anticipated Jesus to deliver them politically, economically, and geographically. That's what they wanted. Rather, Jesus doesn't attack the Romans here. He doesn't attack the oppressors. Who does he attack? Verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. Now we have some synoptic parallels and some more information. In fact, Luke is about as uh, concise and devoid of detail as probably any of the synoptic accounts. And I think that's for a reason, and I'll explain that in a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus didn't attack the Romans, he attacked the religious, and specifically here, as Luke is kind of putting a, not just the religious, because Matthew and Mark both say, you know, he, he, he essentially drove out the, those who were buying and selling, but really Luke <clears throat> brings it down to a very specific spotlight and a very specific group of people, the sellers, the sellers, the merchants here. And so he, likewise, by attacking the sellers, I submit, is really attacking the religious leaders over those sellers. And we'll look at that here in a moment to kind of fill that in. And so it's good to remember that Jesus' triumphal entry was during Passover. Right? It's the, one, of the, one of the heights of the Jewish salvation drama. Right? Think about the Exodus and the firstborn and the blood's lamb over the doorposts and, and the angel of the Lord passing over all the firstborn who obeyed, whose families obeyed. And really, if you think about it, the temple would not have been more abuzz than during this time. 
This was one of the three major times that all Jewish pilgrims needed to come back to Jerusalem and observe a temple festival. And so it is a crowded temple Passover setting that we see Jesus entering and driving out the sellers. Now, why is that important? Why are there even sellers? And we're going to get to that, okay? So Jesus has absolute authority, and that's really what Luke is trying to get at. He has absolute authority, and it's embodied here in verses 45 through 48 in his authority over the religious system. Think about where we're at. We're in the temple. Think about Luke's progress. I can remember Pastor Hobbes at the very beginning of Luke kind of giving us a reality that an overview that Luke is really is is very interested in showing Jesus's geographical progress to Jerusalem and we're not just in Jerusalem now we are in the religious center the temple and so we're bullseye as is to be expected and we're at the epicenter we're at the temple the sacred, most revered place where devout, constantly visited, where the distant but religiously faithful necessarily came, as I mentioned, three times a year. And everyone was at the temple for Passover. And it's here that we see the very corruption and the religious system abusers housed here in the temple. And uh, what's interesting is if you kind of think in terms of bookends, my mind likes to think in those terms. John really records the beginning bookend of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2, if you want to turn there for a second. Keep your finger in Luke. John chapter 2, in verse 14. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The passage that we're looking at, as I've already mentioned, is at the end of Jesus' ministry. This is, this, is the, this is up until just the days prior to the crucifixion. So at the end of Jesus' ministry. Well, John is a different bookend. He's at the beginning bookend, verse 14, chapter 2. And he found, that's Jesus, in the temple, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at the tables, and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, oxen, excuse me, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your father's house will consume me. So Jesus in this moment is fulfilling prophecy and there's so many similarities isn't there to what we see in the synoptics here in Luke chapter 19 and in Matthew and in Mark so much so that many people have a hard time saying either Luke put this at the end of the gospel when it really should be at the beginning or John did vice versa I just simply say okay well we know that John and the synoptics kind of do things a little differently and John has a chronological order in his gospel and uh, 
And so I wouldn't make too much of that other than just to say that John records a beginning account of Jesus' ministry and the synoptics record an ending. And it's a, quite an interesting bookend here that the religious made the temple more about getting than giving, more about self than sacrifice, more about commerce than Christ. And for three years of earthly ministry... Where was Jesus' focus? It wasn't on what the crowd was shouting for. The crowd was shouting for a certain kind of deliverance, right? Jesus wasn't about the social justice issues of the day. Sorry, 2021. <laughs> he just wasn't. He doesn't attack the Roman oppression. If there was a mean, bully, racist kind of group, it would have been the Romans at this time. He doesn't address the economic disparities. He recognizes them, but he doesn't seek to fix them, as we'll see here with the widow's might. He doesn't do anything to change her situation. He calls attention to it. He he values things differently than the culture and society do, but he's not interested necessarily in fixing it. We know one day all those things will be fixed, and we look forward to that day. He has compassion on these people groups for sure, but his mission was not these issues. One man put it this way, and I can't get it out of my mind. It's like rearranging the lounge chairs on the deck of the, 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 the Titanic. Right? Trying to address these issues. Trying to fix these issues when the whole ship is going down anyway. It's a waste of time. And so in the synoptics, unfortunately, we see nothing has changed. Jesus does these uh, 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 he overturns the tables in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry and he drives the sellers out here in Luke chapter 19 at the end of his ministry and nothing has changed. The religious system is still corrupt because they don't want the very person they need. And so Jesus has authority to call out this kind of corruption and that's what we see here. And that's exactly the issue that Jesus walks into when he enters the temple in verse 45. He sees a corrupt religious institution. Remember, we asked the question at the beginning, how in the world can we guard ourselves from this very same fate? And so hopefully this, these few passages, these few verses, and some of the passages that follow that we won't look at in detail tonight because of time, hopefully we'll see an answer to how we don't share the same kind of fate. Luke's account of the merchants driven from the temple is shorter and more focused, as I mentioned, than the other synoptics. And his emphasis isn't on the purchasers, but it's on the sellers in verse 45. We mentioned that. And Jesus drives them out. Jewish historians teach us that the selling, in verse 45, took place in the court of Gentiles. The court of Gentiles. Well, why is it named the court of Gentiles? Quite frankly, it's because Gentiles could enter into this area of the temple. Okay? For reasons that we see. There was commerce going on. 
And why in the world was there commerce going on? Well, it wasn't that uh, the culture necessarily invaded without the religious leaders uh, expressed permission. No, in fact, we understand through history that the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the leaders were very, were very much over this area of the temple. So there was, there was an authority structure, right? This was a well-regulated area. Okay. And the merchants provide, however, the necessary animal sacrifice and other necessary things for the observance of the festivals. And so, really what we see is if you're going to the temple at Passover, there's certain things you have to do. And one of them is bring a sufficient sacrifice and give that to the priest. So Josephus comments that in the year 66, that was the year the construction of the temple was completed. I think that's why it, it, we have a record of it. There were 255,600 lambs sacrificed at Passover to that year. Just that one festival. Now think about that for a second. You have this court that's regulated. You ever been to, oh, Progressive Field or another venue that has like a Chick-fil-A in it or some other franchise that you're familiar with? You ever notice that their prices are not the same? They're always much more than what they are outside those venues, even though it says Chick-fil-A on it or whatever it may be? It's because who gets a cut of all of the sales in that venue? The venue owner. And think about, the, think about this. I mean, we're in the temple. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, are very much regulating this area of the temple. You've got to kind of have a vendor pass, if you will, to get in, to sell, to do business. And who gets a cut? So you can see that there was a tremendous, oh, incentive to be very, 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 very picky about the animals coming in to be sacrificed. In fact, some historians record the reality that the priests had the ability to reject the animal that was going to be offered. And so if you had an animal that you paid for outside the temple courts and it was rejected, even though there was an animal inside the temple courts that, were, that was much more expensive, you might just be better off getting the animal inside the temple courts because then you know that it probably won't be rejected. In fact, it's guaranteed to be accepted. But if you have to buy an animal, it gets rejected outside the courts. You buy an animal, and then you and it's rejected. And then you have to buy an animal inside. Then you're out even more. It's kind of like the venues that say no outside food or drink. Why is that? It's economics 101. If people can't bring drinks in, what are they going to do? They're going to buy the drinks inside. It's not because they're trying the environment or. They're scared of some parasites coming in from outside the venue gates. It's because they just want more money. And they can do it. 
And that's when, you know, you sneak things in. Especially if you have kids that need to snack all the time. And so one man says there was a huge quantity of animals so great as to be almost unbelievable. And it gave the temple cults its peculiar stamp. In other words, they could, they could really regulate the kind of animal that was being sacrificed and therefore profit all the more. Day after day, masses of victims were slaughtered there and burnt. And in spite of the thousands of priests, when on one of the great festivals came round and the multitude of sacrifices was so great that they could hardly cope with them. Thousands of priests couldn't cope with all of this. And so there was quite a pretty penny to be made. And so we can see why Jesus enters the temples and nothing has changed. And he's pretty upset. He's pretty upset that he drives out those who are selling. And, and this word, drive out, is the same word, cast out, that over 30 times in the New Testament, Jesus, or, or the New Testament authors, the Gospels in particular, talk about Jesus casting out demons. So it's a pretty forceful word. It's, it's, a pretty, it's not like, oh, I'm going to just chew some houseflies off the fruit on the kitchen countertop. It is, it is just emptying the courts. It's a complete forceful eviction of the merchants in the court. And the Sanhedrin oversaw this. So this was a direct attack, if you will, on the authority that they carried. They oversaw it. And Jesus comes in and drives them out. And so we're at the epicenter of the religious system during the height of one of the great Jewish festivals and Jesus demonstrates his authority to disrupt it all. And really the part I really want us to see tonight is Jesus' authority really is synonymous with God's word. So we understand that Jesus has authority over the religious leaders and Jesus' authority is synonymous with God's word. We see that in verse 46, saying to them, so as he's driving them out, and no doubt probably looking at the Jewish authorities there, and saying to them, it is written, we tend to gloss over that, but Jesus' solution, again, isn't in saying, okay, you guys are frustrated, you have economic oppression, you need more money, you need land, you're trying to do all you can to gain your status, and so I will go ahead and attack the oppressors. That's not what he says. He goes straight to God's word. It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer. Quoting from Isaiah 57, I believe. But you have made it a den of thieves, a robber's den. This was the rationale and rebuke, the rationale to drive out the sellers and a rebuke to the religious leaders. This was the reason. Excuse me, I think I said Isaiah 57. It's Isaiah 56 that Jesus is quoting from. Verse 7. And he says, My house will be called a house of prayer. What was the temple? Right? 
It was a place to commune with God. I mean, this is where the religious went to get close with God. I mean, we don't necessarily think in those terms today, but that was all the figure back then, right? The tabernacle before the temple, right? There was no place to really go to get to God except for the the tabernacle and now the temple. It was literally the place to commune with God, house of prayer. And what were they doing? They were making it a house of profit. They weren't interested in communing with God. They were more interested in the here and now. And that's not a surprise to us, right? I mean, Jesus just came down. Triumphal entry. And what kind of deliverance do they want, ultimately? They don't want a deliverance to be at peace with God. They want a deliverance to be at peace in their circumstances. They want to be, they want, they want a king to make them profitable, happy, and healthy. And so Jesus says, well, you have made it a robber's den. And here he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7. And he fulfills that prophecy by quoting Jeremiah. And he says that you religious leaders are a violent, corrupt criminal hiding out where thieves hide out in caves. You, know, you don't hide out in the open, but you lurk in the dark, secret places. And that's what they were. This is remarkable. It's a remarkable comparison. A house of prayer rather than, I mean, a robber's den rather than a house of prayer. I'm thankful. I don't think Jesus would come into this place and assess us that way. But I wonder how many churches he would assess that way. How many Christians today might be assessed in that same way. They're busy. They're profitable. But they are missing the point. Jesus isn't interested in numbers. He's not interested in the ministries we check off each week. He's not interested in the number of chapters that we read in our Bible or in devotionals or in systematic theologies or whatever it is. He's not even interested in the amounts that we give. If he were, he would have given us a quota as how many chapters of God's word we need to read each day. He would have given us an exact amount, and we'll find out from Pastor in the next couple of weeks in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He would give us an exact amount of what to give. If you make this much, you give this much. Jesus isn't interested in those things. I'm not saying he's not interested in giving. That's clear that he is. I'm not saying that he's not interested in us reading God's word. It's clear that it's necessary and good and for us to do. I'm saying the very reality of, of, of checkmarking out things so that we can say, yes, I've done that, I'm good for the day, is not the way to relate with our Savior. It never has been, it never will be. And unfortunately, here, the religious system really distilled things down to just check marking. Yep, observe the Passover. Yep, 
do the sacrifice. Oh, it doesn't matter that we're just skinning people alive with the, and making a ton of money on the sacrifices that we're selling. Jesus is all about having the right relationship and we see that really in verse 47 when he really starts to lay out for us and it may not seem readily apparent but I, but I trust it will be and, and certainly in the, in the pericope to come here the, the next paragraph that the, the solution to religious corruption is always a true and humble and transparent disposition with the word of God with relating rightly with the word of God verse 47 Jesus was teaching daily in the temple that was Jesus' fix he got rid of the distraction of the sellers and what does he do daily he's teaching what's he teaching Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. Luke rolls down that window just a little bit more. On one of those days in the temple, because he's daily teaching, while he was teaching the people in the temple, and what? Preaching the gospel. That's right. The contents never changed. The problem lies with the hearts of those selling and those overseeing the sellers. They didn't have a right relationship with God's word. They never had. And Jesus says, really the way to fix or for us hopefully never to walk into religious corruption or just a mere religious system is to be people who are daily being instructed by God's word. It's really that simple. He's rehearsing the grace of the gospel. It must be a common, consistent reality in our lives. It must be our motivation and our guide. The fact that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and that I, the undeserved, have an opportunity to participate in his mission is always a corrective and a guardrail for the church. Churches that have become more institutional and programmatic, churches that have become socially oriented and prosperity driven, churches that have become legalistic and performance based, whatever the issue with the church is, you can be sure that at the end of the day, they walked away from the whole counsel of the gospel of the word of God they may have some of it and you can think about our religious system friends in the neighborhood they have a lot of the gospel don't they think about it but they just do just do one significant thing and they put this thing called the church in between man and God 
and that church says you've got to do a lot of things to go from where you're at to where God is. Oliver made a cool video depicting that, and you guys shared that. The reality is, is there's no one, no church, I should say, in between man and God. And the chasm between man and God is so great, who's the only one in between man and God? Bridging. That's Jesus. And that, my friend, is the essence of the gospel. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to go there, but the essence of the gospel is there in the resurrection chapter. That Jesus Christ died and that he rose again to save us from our sins. And so, when our mission is the very word of life, we do not need entertainment to bring people in. We do not need programs to keep people coming. We do not need outreaches that only feed the body. We do not need standards to measure Christian maturity. That was the reality in verses 47 to 48 here. See, Jesus teaching daily in the temple in verse 47, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. They were trying to terminate him. They were trying to eliminate him. Why? Because they wanted more. They had a system in place. And the system happened to be relatively profitable. So Jesus was the threat. He was a threat to that system. And the irony that we understand is he was the deliverer for all of that system. That system was just a shadow and a copy of the very one they're seeking to destroy. <laughs> Look at verse 48. They could not find anything. This is as Jesus is daily teaching in the temple. Verse 48. They could not find anything that they might do They couldn't find a way to destroy Jesus. They couldn't find anything to hang on him. And what still happened? Folks, this is always the result of the word of God. We don't need programs. We don't need entertainment. We don't need uh, uh, outreaches and, and standards to check to see if we're measuring up. What do we need? For all the people were hanging onto every word he said, there it is again. What battles religious corruption? It's the word of God. Embodied here in our Savior, the word, Jesus Christ. And the people are riveted. They're hanging on, Luke says, to every word he says. No doubt, as Jesus is preaching the gospel, some are getting saved but not those steeped in religious system, in a mostly materialistic marketplace. And so the gospel, God's word, is enough. We don't need to add to Grace Church of Menor. Grace Church of Menor is always seeking to simplify itself unto gospel purposes. We are. We actively talk about that as pastors and as elders. And people have really great ideas 
and they come to us and one of the big things that we do is we say, okay, is this the mission of Grace Church of Mentor? And if it is, great. But if it's not, if it's just a good thing, it's probably not necessary and may become a distraction to the Word of God. So up until this point, uh, we see that Jesus has authority over the religious system, that it was corrupt. Right? We see that in verse 45. We see that Jesus attacks the religious corruption, not on social, political justice issues, but where the focus lies at the, the leadership level. And we see that God's word is the remedy to this kind of religious corruption. It always has been. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that. By faith, what does Paul say about faith? Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of God. That hasn't changed, whether you're an Old Testament saint or a New Testament saint. That has always and will always be the case. True saving faith is always because the word of God is taking root in someone's life, changing them and transforming them through the through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. And uh, so it's quite a remarkable thing if you think about it. And the solution in verse 46, 47, 48 is the same. Jesus says, you have gotten way off God's word. Let me quote you something here. And then what does Jesus go and do after he gets those sellers out of the marketplace? What does he do? He teaches. And so, in closing, I just want to give us kind of a bigger overview of, I, I think, where Luke is intentionally pivoting after the triumphal entry. Right? Because we see this assumed authority and this great crowd interested in Jesus, and then Jesus comes into the temple and says, no, this isn't right. He threatens again the leadership, the system. And what Luke is trying to say is, as things lead up, as, as time leads up to Jesus' crucifixion, crucifixion, don't forget that Jesus has absolute authority. Don't forget that, believer. Jesus does. And we see in verses 45 and 48, through 48 that Jesus has authority over the religious system in the home of the religious system, the temple, at one of the great festivals. Then, just by way of overview, and you can just kind of see this here a little bit, in verses 1 through verses 8 of Luke chapter 20, we see that Jesus' authority is from God, and that's really... Uh, uh, the spotlight, the laser focus there in verse 4 when the question Jesus asked was, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And so what Jesus is really trying to get them to understand, and it depends on how the religious leaders answer this question, if they answer it as it's from heaven, right, then they say something about Jesus. If they answer it from men, they've got a really mad crowd on their hands. So Jesus puts them in a pickle, in a pickle that they won't answer. But Jesus' point is, my authority comes from 
He says the same thing in the parable of the vine growers in verses 9 through 18. If you were to read that, we would see the focus, maybe, the teaching lesson is verse 13. The owner of the vineyard, here it would be God, said, what shall I do? Remember, this is a parable. I will send my beloved son, Jesus. Perhaps they will respect him. We know they don't. We know they reject him. Jesus is really talking about the religious leaders there. But who's the son? Jesus. Who sent the son? The father. Again, Jesus' authority is from God. It's over the religious system. It's from God. We see another uh, hallmark of Jesus' authority. It's over Caesar and over all the Caesars of all the world in verses 19 through 26. It's over Caesar. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus' authority doesn't rest at Caesar. He pays taxes. He got that coin, right, from the fish's mouth for Peter to pay the tax for he and, and him and Peter. And so, just like Paul says, honor to whom honor is due, Jesus essentially is saying here that, hey, or Luke is saying, hey, in this understanding, understand that, yeah, there's going to be Caesars in our lives all the time, but their authority only extends so far, and Jesus is authority over all. His authority is absolute. He has authority over death. We see that in terms of the resurrection in verses 30, excuse me, verses 27 through 38. And if we were to pinpoint a couple verses to learn that lesson, we'd go to verse 35 and we'd say, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, this is Jesus answering a question about marriage and, hey, if I have married so many people, right, uh, who am I married to in, in, in the resurrection? Jesus says, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, those who are essentially are in Jesus Christ and will be resurrected in him, everyone will be resurrected, but not everyone will be resurrected in him, from the dead neither marry nor are given to marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are like angels and sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Jesus is Lord over death. He has authority over death. What more authority can Jesus have? He has authority over the religious system. He has authority that comes directly from God. He has authority over even the Caesars in our lives. He has authority over our greatest enemy, sin and death. And we see a lot of death, don't we? Jesus also has authority interpreting the scripture. In the scriptures, we see that in verses 20, uh, excuse me, verses 41 through 47 of chapter 20. And really, Jesus asks a stumping question. <laughs> and he says, basically, you know, who, how can Christ be David's son if, in verse 44, therefore David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? So Jesus can interpret the scriptures like no other. And lastly, Jesus his authority extends to valuing or making determinations of what is actually worth and what actually is worth less. As we round the corner into chapter 21, we see in verse 3, with the widow's gift, he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. Jesus has authority alone to determine what is valuable. 
In Jesus, the amount is not the valuable part. He says, this poor widow put in more than any of the rich. How can that be? Because Jesus determines what is valuable. Jesus determines what is worthy. So don't forget the drama, the context of this casting out of the sellers in the temple. Jesus is being hailed on one side as Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes, save Mal. And on the other side, his authority is questioned incessantly by the religious leaders. And Luke frames for us in his gospel the beautiful reality that Jesus' authority is absolute, even on his way to the cross. Even when the religious elite reject him, the most authoritative body, right, the the leaders of the Jewish religion in the most religious place in the world, the temple, are ultimately underneath Jesus' authority. He casts them out. I mean, think about that for a second. During the height of Passover, Jesus casts, he empties the court of the temples. 255,000 lambs being slaughtered. It was a busy place. There's a lot of people having to be there to buy and to sell and all the support staff. There were a lot of people, and he chases them out. That's something. That's like, that's like going to Progressive Field, right? Before the first pitch, going up to the clubhouse seats where there's free food in the dining place, and everybody's there right before the game. Right? I've had the privilege to go there a few times. Everyone's there right before the game. As soon as the game starts, right, everyone leaves. And, but everyone's there trying to get as much free food as they can. <laughs> they get a lot of money for these tickets. And what does Jesus do? He clears the place. It's like going to the mall. I know some of us avoid the mall like the plague, like me. I can appreciate that. But it's like going to the mall at Christmas time. And going to the food court during lunch hour. It is packed the week before Christmas. It's like clearing that place out. Not being a mall worker, not being a police officer, not screaming bomb or fire. That's what Jesus did. Except on a grander scale. He cleared what authority Jesus commanded. It's quite amazing. It's astounding. It's kind of hard to wrap your minds around. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around. And yet, in a few days, he will be crucified again. I mean, not again, but he was hailed, triumphal entry. He clears out the temple, and then he will be crucified. That happens also underneath Jesus' absolute authority. We know that. We trust that. But sometimes it's hard in the moment when things are really hard for us to see how Jesus is sovereign, absolute, and has authority over all things. Peter puts it so aptly in Acts. He says, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. Nothing was outside of God's control. What is the only way for us to be sure we don't end up in a corrupt religious system contrary to God? 
as Jesus demonstrates here in Luke chapter 19, it's being in his word. It's learning for us who can teach it. It's teaching and discipling and obeying. It's orbiting our lives around. It's submitting to God's word so that we can be sure we submit to Christ's absolute, unthreatened authority. That's it. It's that simple. This church will go on pleasing our Savior, refraining from religious corruption, if we simply, unyieldingly learn and teach, and as we live, obey God's word. That's our task. That's our task. It's a warning because we could see how all the religious corruption of our day at one point held to, most of it held to God's word. And yet any small little deviation can have incredible consequences. So learn, teach. It's a responsibility for everyone in this room. Obey the word of God and we will submit to that's how we know we are submitting to Christ's absolute authority. Father, we pray that you'd help us to do that and uh, Lord, we, we need each other to do that. We ask that you would um, continue to help us to love you to love your word to obey it to not bring to allow it to bring to every single corner of our life allegiance and submission to you we long for the word of God to be rooted more and more in our hearts and to be visible more and more on our feet and on our hands and on our lips as we love you more and more. Lord, give us an opportunity this year to bring that word to others and to see many saved. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you sometime. Not next week. Some other time. Lord bless you.